Even though you would sometimes disagree with him, he would listen. There are things that we can be doing right now to have open dialogue, to get public input, and to be able to make solid decisions for the state of Alaska. You know, politics, Mr. President, in my estimation, is a character test. Welcome to the Empty Office Podcast. I'm Mike Mason. Today, Senator Tobin and I are joined by the director of the leading public policy research organization in the state of Alaska. Senator Tobin, good morning. Good morning, Mike. And joining us today is Diane Hirschberg. She's the director of the University of Alaska's Institute of Social and Economic Research, which is commonly uh, referred to as ICER. Good morning, Diane. Good morning. So I want to begin with an overview. I know what ICER is. Senator Tobin knows what ICER is. I don't think a lot of people out there know what ICER is and what ICER does. Give me the big 50,000 view of your organization. So ICER is the um, oldest public policy institute within the state of Alaska. We were founded shortly after statehood um, by an act of the state legislature. And our role is to provide the critical information that policymakers and the public need to make decisions about the challenges that face us. And we cover a broad array of um, content areas. Um, of course, we're very well known for our regional economics and talking about the state budget and the impact of oil and gas and decisions that are made around how we use the permanent fund. But we also have a long history of doing research uh, in the area of education, in health economics. Uh, we have moved um, very intentionally into looking at um, Arctic policy issues because, of course, Alaska is the U.S. Um, it, Alaska is why the U.S. is an Arctic nation. And uh, some of the work that we do is driven by the individuals who work for us, and that changes depending on the faculty and the senior researchers that we have who are um, seeking funding to, to answer some of the questions that we think need to be looked at. One of the things that I want to bring up, and I'll do it right here, is the reliance on data by policymakers. And uh, there's a couple of aspects to that. One Data is essential to policymakers to make informed decisions. One of the things that I've noticed in the past, oh, let's call it maybe 10 years or so, is policymakers that rely on the data to prevent themselves from making the necessary policy decisions. Am I looking at that wrong? Am I just, am I being cynical about how uh, policymakers are abdicating their responsibilities by using data as the uh, as kind of the crutch for making or not making policy decisions? Well, one of the things that a lot of policy researchers uh, openly acknowledge is that data reflects um, the biases of the people that are designing the research and collecting the data. So there's no such thing as truly objective data. Um, and that also means that data can be manipulated to tell stories that you're interested in telling, um, whether um, it's uh, for or to prevent something from happening. So I, I don't know that it's cynical. I mean, I, I would hope that in some cases people would use data not to make the wrong decision. Um, if, if I might look back on one of the projects that I did, which is not 
quantitative data, but qualitative data on the experiences of indigenous peoples in residential schools uh, back before the Molly Hooch case. There's a broad array of experiences. Some people had very, very good experiences that set them off on um, amazing careers. There were other people that were really brutally abused in those settings. And part of the issue is it's really hard to make sure that every adult who is responsible for these very vulnerable uh, children, because they're away from their families, away from their community, that they are really acting in the best interest of children. When I first was presenting the results of this finding, I was speaking with the State Board of Education as they were deciding whether to raise the minimum number of students in a school from 10 to 25. If we had 25 students as a minimum, we would have a lot of rural schools that would close, and a lot of children would be, or families would be choice to ma- uh, forced to make the choice of whether you put your child in a family member's home, send them away to boarding school, or you uproot your family. These are not good choices for a lot of people. And my research was used by the chair of the state board to pretty much say no. Look at what has happened in the past. We need children to have the choice to go away to residential school. We have wonderful options, but we also need not to be forcing families to make those difficult choices when if you suddenly have to increase the number of boarding schools and boarding home programs, you are now increasing the risks enormously to our most vulnerable and most important resource. Senator Tobin, one of the things we talked about before we started here was how uh, it appears we are starting to see, and I'm sure it's always happened, but it seems more obvious now, where uh, data is being misused or is being skewed or is being, I don't know, it's just they're not being forthright with it. Um, Can you talk about what you were talking about earlier? It's something that I find really fascinating coming from a research background, currently working on a PhD in Indigenous education. We are taught to really take a critical eye to the data sets that are being presented, to the value of qualitative data that we are trying to discern and tease out the, the story behind the information. I really appreciate some of my very early learning at UAA in the world of statistics, where then Dr. Petratus, uh, who since became the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences and now has left the state, would often say, statistics do not lie. Statisticians are lying, cheating bastards. (laughs) And I really appreciated that lens that you can shift the narrative of the story depending on what presentation you want to use or what subsample or particular construct you would like to redesign the information to say, what story you would like it to tell. And coming into work for Senator Begich, I really relied on my research background, peer-reviewed data points, uh, very nonpartisan and very well-reputable and renowned research institutions, doing my own analysis of who was authoring the studies that we were putting forth to articulate our policy positions. And then I would have someone give me an opinion article and say, well, I can debunk everything you've just put forth because this op-ed in some Florida Sentinel says otherwise. And I could not understand how my painstakingly compiled 
data sets and peer-reviewed journals and articles were being elevated on basis along with these opinion articles, holding the same space as though they were one-for-one comparisons. It is something that I think is really critical that we as a, a body look at and something that we hire for is research skills. Folks who are willing and able to really utilize our powers of discernment to say, this isn't applicable to Alaska, or maybe this study wasn't designed well, and we shouldn't put it forth into the public record to articulate a point. Uh, To continue on this vein, I have been very dismayed here this year in the legislature where we've been having a debate about what is happening in our schools. Mm -hmm. And for the Senate Education Committee, we have relied on ICER research to punctuate our points around why a significant BSA increase is so imperative and what the lack of a BSA increase over the past five years has done to our public education system. And there are opposing forces who are presenting cherry-picked data that talk about diversity and poverty rates and present information on salaries and economic well-being as though these have any wherewithal when we talk about the state of public education in the state. I wish that in the moments that I would see this data, I had uh, an ability to be to pivot and to be able to provide more counterpoints, but it often catches me off guard because I don't expect folks who come to our committees to not utilize the gem that we have in our state of ICER and to rely on that data. Uh, It is fascinating to me that there is this insidious influence of information that wants to erode what we all collectively know, not only quantitatively, but also qualitatively, we can see what is happening to our schools. Well, I, I might say that, you know, one of the things at ICER that we, we really try to do is to focus on um, making sure that we are doing the best possible analyses with the best possible data, recognizing that there's always, you know, going to be ways that you can pick at this. But part of the way we do this, you talked about peer-reviewed. And for people who don't understand this, it means that there are external reviewers who look at articles that have been submitted for publication blindly. They don't know who has written them. And they, they go through and tear them apart, and then we respond. And, and sometimes our stuff doesn't get published because somebody says it doesn't rise to a rigorous enough standard. And so uh, the work we do for the legislature doesn't always go through peer review before we get here, because if somebody asks us within a week's time, could you send us some data on this? All right, we're, we're going to put do our best effort to make something that is uh, rigorous, reliable, you know, quality. But we also then take our work out and we have it peer reviewed. And um, I know that uh, Dr. DeFeo and Dr. Berman, who've been doing a lot of work around school finance recently, also have a lot of publications coming out that are relying exactly on the data we've been collecting and analyzing. So I feel very comfortable. Um, We do internal peer review. We send around our analyses and our PowerPoints before people come down here to present um, so that we're making sure both that Good work is being done and a compelling story is being shared. 
The other piece is ICER doesn't make recommendations. We're never going to tell a legislator what to do. We all have our own opinions, and we don't always agree, but the work needs to come forth with, here is the best data that we can give you at this time with our best analyses so that you can make decisions. Um, What is definitely distressing to us is to see research that is grounded in ideology first and not in good data and good um, methods. And it is really hard to argue against ideology because people have their mindset and often they're not going to change their mind looking at the data. I mean, it's why stories work. But at times, ideological blinders, and this comes from all sides, those will keep us from actually seeing what's in front of us that the data is telling us. You're listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Gail Tobin. My name is Mike Mason. Uh, so I was a reporter for many years, and I want to talk about the relationship between ICER and kind of the public and the media. Um, and I'll just use one of my favorite people, Gunnar Knapp. Yes. I relied on Gunnar Knapp because I covered the, uh, the fisheries in, in Cook Inlet. Then I covered the fisheries out in Bristol Bay. Uh, he was the fish guy, basically. And uh, I relied upon him for insight and for, you know, re- uh, research and then, you know, kind of pr- providing some perspective about stuff. How important is it for ICER to be more than just talking to lawmakers? It's talking to the people through the media and other sources. Well, you know, our democracy is only as strong as the people who can vote. And uh, so we want people to be informed as they're making decisions. We want the fishing industry to be able to dig into data on what's going on with um, pricing of their catch vis-a-vis local economy, vis-a-vis their costs, energy costs, and what's going on in the international policy arena for fisheries. And so it is really important that our work be uh, accessible and available. Um, Every report that we do makes its way onto our website at some point. Um, We're a little behind on that because of uh, staff turnover. But our goal really is um, our reports are accessible, our data is available. Of course, we never share any confidential identifiable data, but data sets, we we like people to dig into them and look at them themselves. We, We also recognize when we're not the right people to do the work, And we have so many good options um, from Northern Economics to the um, Business Enterprise Institute and the Center for Economic Development that at times when we say we don't have that expertise, but we know who does. Um, Our goal always is to have somebody get an answer or get to the right place to get the answers they need. Um, But absolutely, the, the other piece is trying to Invite people in, um, whether it's the colleague I'm hosting from Finland right now who's been giving public talks about what education looks like in Finland because we know that on international standardized tests they outperform most other nations, um, to uh, inviting people in to hear talks by our researchers. Uh, It's really very, very um, crucial to us that that our work is used. Uh, We don't want it sitting on a shelf. 
So let's transition to education policy because mm-hmm. you just brought it up and you are, uh, in addition to being the director of ICER, you're also a professor of education policy right. at the University of Alaska. And that's right up our alley, considering that Senator Tobin is the chair of the Senate Education Committee, which is tasked with helping set education policy mm-hmm. in the state of Alaska. So let's go to what you were just talking about, uh, the Finland. Yes. Um, why, or is there is there an understanding about why Finland is successful on kind of the standardized testing and, and, and other metrics? I, I believe that there is some understanding and a lot of misunderstanding. Um, I, and, and we intentionally titled uh, Dr. Turunen's talk, uh, It's Not a Miracle, because people kept talking about the Finland miracle. And really, Finland started investing money um, so that uh, teachers were paid a um, robust salary. I mean, as, as strongly middle class, not overpaid, but definitely strongly middle class. Um, they Every teacher in first grade through when students um, graduate from, from upper secondary or high school in our parlance, every one of their teachers has a master's degree. And they, when they uh, teacher candidates get a bachelor's and then a master's, they do research. So they're learning how to apply um, empirical evidence, um, evidence-based practice in the classroom. They also, they don't actually do national testing until the kids are ready to go into certain um, degree programs. But teachers are well-prepared with this bachelor's and master's, and then they are considered the professional in the classroom that can assess learning and decide how best to meet the needs of every child. So one of the interesting conversations I was having in my EDU 636 class last night was this intersectionality between an in-classroom educator and some of the conceptual theory that we were talking about in education practice. We were discussing a report that had come out around this intersectionality between the researcher and the educator and having the educator go into the homes of their students, particularly their multicultural or bicultural students, and really look at what is the funds of knowledge? What are these systems of knowing and learning that are utilized in these homes that we do not replicate in the classroom. Right. And the subsequent action from the educators to intertwine the student as also the teacher and the educator to help elevate the knowledge coming from these spaces to improve their academic performance really showcase the value of this effort. And then, of course, as we rounded out the conversation, I got very despondent because I don't know how to do that in Alaska. I am unsure of how I can create that space because we don't have these systems of supporting our public education like Finland does. My first year in the legislature, we were having a debate with someone around school start times, and they were interested in delaying school start time, and they used Finland as the model. Students in Finland do not start formal education till six, and they were having better test score results. They were performing better in the classroom. 
And of course, we all wondered why that was. So upon research, we learned that Finland heavily invests in high quality early learning and they help support their parents in that endeavor. They create those childcare centers as mini pre-K systems that go from three to six. It was incredible the resource they put into those early learning systems and the the input that results in an incredible output. So it's not a one-for-one comparison, nor is it something that you can say, oh, Finland does it better, and it's a miracle. Right. And, uh, of course, the other interesting piece about those early learning settings is it is still intentionally play-based. It is not worried about numeracy and literacy in the way that we have a tendency with children coming from Um, diverse backgrounds to want to drill and kill them in standardized English and math before kindergarten. And we're finding out some research shows that those children that have been in what we called high quality early learning settings that were so rigid were failing in later grades because they weren't doing the curious um, exploration frankly, the way our indigenous families do learning where the kids are out and observing and playing and practicing, but not worrying as much about the ABCs because kids pick that up. Kids pick up language at a very early age. Um, We don't need to worry about that as much as giving them enriched environments with music, with art, with Um, opportunities to be on the land and uh, start understanding what it means to have um, plants with medicinal values and plants that are not safe and and those other things that help us negotiate our lives outside of a, a walled setting. And I think it really comes down to class size, which is often the part that is missed in many of these dialogues. In Finland, they do not have pre-K or kindergarten classes of 40 or 45 And we often talk about what is the role of the legislature in helping support our public education and early learning. And to me, the best mechanism that we can trigger to improve student outcomes is to reduce class size. One of the challenges that we have um, in this state, um, we've talked about it for years with the economy, is is we haven't done long-term planning. And, uh, you know, a benefit cost um, uh, analysis of investment in early learning and costs later on in life in terms of people who are, um, whether they're incarcerated or accessing the social welfare net. I mean, we see that investment in early learning pays off. Um, Class size is always a funny discussion in our state because we have schools that only have 10 students in them. We have areas uh, in the state where we have teachers, two teachers and 12 students, which would seem ideal, but then you realize those 12 students are first grade to 11th grade and might speak three different languages at home. And so now we have to think about what does it mean to be able to meet the needs of every student um, in, you know, no teacher can do 12 preps a day. Um, so so we, we actually do have some different challenges than um, elsewhere in the country, but we also have some really amazing opportunities. Um, I'm excited to see what tribal schools um, as an initiative generates in terms of that, what you were talking about before, bringing in uh, indigenous ways of teaching and learning into... Um, the well, and maybe not bringing them in at all. Maybe bringing 
the students and the learning out onto the land in indigenous ways, but with this goal of still having every student be able to, by 12th grade, choose their pathway to be a whaling captain or to be an attorney. So uh, I have two last questions. And this one question, you can totally punt on this one if you'd like. One of the things that I have noted is that uh, very smart people that are kind of number-oriented often come into this building and they are frustrated (laughs) because this building – we play. We do politics, mm-hmm. and politics is not a two plus two equals four game. It is a two plus two equals seven point five million game, or something like that. Is it frustrating for you and your colleagues sometimes to uh, to deal with politics and its and its and its every facet of it? I have a background in politics, so I come here and and it's fun for me. Actually, um, I. I my mother was um, California State Chair and National Vice President of the National Women's Political Caucus. So I was raised working on campaigns. I interned in legislators' offices. Um, so for me, this is um, this is an important part of the world. Um, and also because I am strongly committed to having a democratic process, which is messy. Yes, it's messy. Yes, it's frustrating and it takes a long time. And that's okay. Um, I do think uh, at times we are frustrated by um, attacks on our research that are coming purely from ideology. I think there are times when we listen to some of the questions asked and we know they're grandstanding. I, I, all of the senators do surveys of their constituents and then they put out the results and I think, great, that's really just telling you what a few people think. It's good though, because it brings people into the process. And if we acknowledge that, then that's really important. So I'm not frustrated at all. I, um, you know, as I said, I have my personal views on how I would like the world to look, and sometimes I see progress toward it, and sometimes I see progress away from it, but at least we're having this conversation, and we're not being invaded by um, somebody who's trying to make us do things the way they think we should do things. Senator Tobin, you're uh, 80 days in. Uh, are you frustrated sometimes uh, as a person that is uh, data-driven, can still do long division in your head uh, about the, the just the politics in this building? I do get very frustrated, and I don't want to rely solely on data points because they don't tell the full story, the breadth of experience. Uh, I think Diane really highlighted how sometimes that qualitative data is critical to the dialogue around values and what the policy position will be. What really frustrates me is this inability to see the long-term consequence. We often talk about the Perry preschool study here in this office. It was what really drove Senator Begich to talking about the value of high-quality early learning and pre-K. And now with the Perry Preschool Study showcasing intergenerational effects of high-quality early learning on a family's economic potential, on their ability to withstand uh, economic pressures, uh, be able to respond to inflationary measures, and so on and so forth, it really articulates to me why we need to be 
preventative and focus on upstream solutions so that we can hopefully delay or even completely prevent the downstream consequences that may come at the behest of volatile oil markets or because we as a state are not investing in workforce retention and recruitment. It is difficult at times to have conversations with colleagues who don't see it from that lens, who are looking at it from a very narrow focus, or who may say, well, my my constituents think this, or my constituents would like me to fight for this, based on maybe a faulty survey that they put out to their constituents, or perhaps because they talk to a, hand, a handful of their neighbors I often want to remind everyone, and so I'll say it here, is that as much as my responsibility is to my constituents to elevate their voices, it is also imperative that I take the knowledge that I am being afforded in this building and bring it back to my constituents to help them understand the complexity of what is happening within our state and what our state faces. I know that that is not always going to be popular. I recently had a conversation with a constituent around why we might need to move toward a broad-based sales tax, income tax, other form of taxation of Alaskans when they only wanted to cut the PFD. And I explained to them the complexities of that particular dichotomy. And I didn't win that constituent over. I definitely did not uh, persuade them to my to my knowledge base. But what I did do was my obligation to them, which is to be the conduit so they could understand the complexity of the situation and what factors I am weighing when I have to make my choices uh, when I press yes or no. So we are totally out of time. So we're going to go to our final question. And I prefaced this to uh, Diane. We could talk forever, Mike. We could. Yes. Um, So I've been asking this one question of all of the guests. And that question is, uh, if you could choose one person dead or alive, they get a vote, you get to drop them into this building. Who would that be? I, I, th- I thought about this, and I, I can go many places. Um, I actually recently, after you'd asked that, I was thinking about Bishop Tutu. But I'm going to stick with Nicola Sturgeon because she, as the leader of Scotland, has negotiated um, being in this colonial position um, under the UK um, in trying to think about how do you sensibly move toward complete um, independence for Scotland, but also not destroy an economy. Um, and and I just, I love listening to her. Um, she's far from perfect, but I think she could come in and, and, and kick some butt in moving things forward. Thank you so much, Diane. I appreciate you coming in and talking to us today. Oh, my pleasure. So you've been listening to the Empty Office podcast, which is a production of the office of Senator Lukey Giltobin. You can subscribe to the podcast on Substack and the Apple Podcast app. And if you like what you hear, please leave a positive review. That helps spread the word. I'm Mike Mason. Please be safe out there. Yeah.